Small business financial services are only 1% finished. Our latest research examines the jobs to be done and cultural insights on what the US business owners really, really need and the digital services that will actually help them meet those goals. Download this research for free by heading to bit.ly forward slash digital SMB. That's bit.ly forward slash digital SMB. From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. This week, we bring you the challenges facing challenger banks in the current climate, free trade's record-breaking raise, and PayPal sees a rise in its silver tech as the older generation tests digital payments for the very first time. All this and much, much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 429 of Fintech Insider. My name is David Breer, and today I am joined by my colleague and co-host, Mr. Simon Taylor. How are you doing today, Simon? I'm not too bad. Very, very warm in the UK at the moment, but there's lots happening in fintech, not least silver tech, which I sort of hoped would be some sort of silver surfer, Fantastic Four reference, but it's not. But we'll get into that, I'm sure. How are you doing? I mean, if I wasn't missing the office, like previously like suddenly with 26 degree heat hitting norwich then uh, like air conditioning would be like a, a real dream right now so uh, so doing really well just a bit melty which uh, mm. is not not really very nice for anybody is mm-hmm. it, to be honest anyway all right as it is now normal we're going to be joined albeit remotely by some super duper awesome guests making their fintech insider debut we have david tomlinson who is the cco over at metro bank welcome to the show david how are you doing I'm very, very well. How's everyone else on the call today? Pretty good. Pretty melty. Where, where in the world are you, David? So I'm in the uh, what is, can only be described as the financial metropolis of Woking uh, here right now. So uh, yeah, uh, the uh, city slickers are just everywhere around me right now. <laughs> very, very good. Well, let's, uh, it's definitely going to be warm in Woking as well, right? Uh, and making their return visits, we have Simon Curitan, who is the CEO over at Funding Options. How's it going, Simon? Very good, David. Always a pleasure. Well, thanks for coming back. And we also have Caroline Plum, who is CEO and founder over at Fluidly. How's it going, Caroline? Very good. Thank you, David. Very good. So sunny here. I think you guys saying, you know, complaining it's too hot. I think it's lovely. Well, it'd be lovely if I was out in the garden with a beer, but I'm inside recording a podcast right now, you know, but, but uh, anyway, we'll get to the nice bit afterwards, won't we? But, uh, but it's, I mean, we shouldn't complain, should we? Look at us being all British talking about the weather. Aren't we uh, a stereotype or 10? But uh, all right, guys, we probably, probably should get on with the show. All right. So what does it mean to be a challenger bank in the current climate? There's a, a lot of movement globally in the challenger bank market this week. And really what we want to try and get down to is, is a bit of an understanding of what the uh, impact is in different locations. There's loads of different things happening, I think, across the globe in in uh, response to actually that everything that's happening with the, the COVID side of things. But but really, how are the, the challenger banks really f- phasing in the, in this uh, in, in this period of time. First up, we had a, a story over on the FT, which was Monzo faces a near 40% valuation drop in its latest fundraising. So Monzo faces a, a 40% valuation drop. Um, Monzo is raising a new round of cash from investors at almost 40% discount to its previous fundraising, highlighting really the pressures on everything that's happening given the, the coronavirus crisis. The bank is close to agreeing a deal that will 
value it at around 1.25 billion. Now, this is compared previously to the 2 billion valuation that it secured in its most recent funding round. And the sharp drop highlights how the pandemic is really challenging unlisted tech valuation companies at this stage. Uh, and the expected 40% decline in Monzo's valuation compares it with a 40% drop that we've seen within the FTSE 350 banks index, which it, since its start of, uh, of the year. Monzo has already started furloughing some 295 staff. They've closed the uh, Las Vegas support office because uh, I, I think, you know, given the, the growth ambitions probably being put on uh, pause uh, for now, uh, as well as CEO Tom Blomfield foregoing his salary for a year, uh, really as they just look to weather the the challenge that's kind of coming up in this storm. I mean, what do you guys think on this? Is this um, is this something to to worry about, or do you think this is just them being um, probably everybody's in the same boat of this one? Simon, what do you think? Simon Taylor. Uh, yeah, so it's it's a real shame to see down rounds, um, and uh, you know, Monza's done amazing things historically to really change what the expectation of customers. Uh, in the UK market and the global market are from a retail bank. Um, but actually, uh, you know, I was I, there's a meme going around Twitter at the moment that says the flat round is the new 3x valuation. To get any capital uh, coming into an organization in this market is a win. Um, and we saw that, you know, Revolut had closed around just before everything happened with uh, coronavirus. So there's some lack of luck with timing, I think, here, which is quite unfortunate. Um, but there's fundamentally something really, really still, I think, compelling about that business. And uh, the, the bit here that really struck me is, of course, Tom Blomfield stepping back into a president role um, and putting in a CEO who can do some of the more operational pieces. Uh, it sort of says that there's a, a change in playing to the strengths of what, you know, what individuals are good at. Monzo was a real product innovator for a long period of time, and that's what drove their growth. But maybe they hadn't been as strong as some others in terms of getting to profitability. And maybe this change will help them do that and put them on a more sustainable footing. And maybe they didn't have to do that in the previous market. So you know, as an optimist, I'm hoping this makes them stronger. But there's a lot of people going through tough times right now. Um, and it's not surprising it's hitting organizations that were in growth mode um, and forcing them to reassess. Yeah, I mean, down rounds are always a, you know, they've always been a bit of a, a kiss of death, haven't they? But I mean, there's this big pandemic thing happening out there, isn't there? You know, like for all of the old rules around finance, I think are probably changing ever so slightly, aren't they? I mean, I think the point around Tom's change of role is a really interesting one. But for me, I mean, it's just how businesses grow. Uh, I know it's been sort of differently communicated in the press, hasn't it? I think if you read the TechCrunch article, it's saying he's moving more into a, a strategic role. If you read some of the other ones, he's stepped down and, and uh, almost implying that he's leaving the organization, which is is kind of bizarre. But uh, but I, I think that's just part, as you say, of uh, as the companies grow up, then they, they put the people in the right places, don't they? But um, what do you think, Caroline? How, how do you sort of read this one? Is this just Monzo being affected by the market in the same way and that everybody else is and really being in a situation where the, the raise probably comes at bad time? Or do you think there's something else at play? Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably a couple of things exactly to your point. Um, I mean, clearly at the moment, it's harder to raise money than it has been because the funds themselves, the LPs aren't going to want to put more into them. And, um, you know, they have their own liquidity issues. So I'm sure that and particularly in the growth stages and the later stage funds that Monzo is raising from, those are the ones that are particularly hit, I think. 
Um, but, it, you know, it, it, as you rightly said, it's a it's a pandemic. And a lot of the challenger banks are heavily reliant on transaction revenue, payments revenue. And of course, people aren't going and spending in restaurants and bars and, you know, the transactions that a lot of these um, challenger banks were were kind of more reliant on. So I'm sure they've had a kind of double whammy of a revenue hit and a tougher fundraising environment, which must make it really hard. But I think structurally, you know, does a branch network make sense in the long term? You know, really, do people? I think it's going to change. It's fundamentally going to change consumer behaviour, and over time, it's banks like the challenger banks that are set up for those structural changes in consumer behaviour that I think will benefit. So perhaps it's a reflection of um, overzealous or uh, higher raises in the past. But I think the long-term prospects in this whole sector are really positive. I mean, it's interesting. It's interesting because I, I mean, I basically haven't touched my wallet for like two months. Do you know what I mean? But I, my main account is still standing orders, direct debits, those things going out. Um, as far as Monzo is concerned, they probably think I'm dead at this stage, given the fact that they haven't seen any transactions there at all. But um, but my main bank does have them. It's, it is it is interesting, that, that, uh, that sort of difference there, isn't it? What, what do you think, David? Well, a couple of things I would suggest there. First of all, I agree completely with what you just said there, there David, that the flight to the incumbents in times of stress is, is, is well known. And so where you get your salary paid and where the bills come out of typically is not potentially in, in an organization like Monzo, who I have to say have done a phenomenal job and, and they, they've got a great uh, set of solutions out there. Uh, the second thing I was going to say is it's a question of maths, quite frankly, at this point in time. So all banks, irrespective of size, are, are finding it tough. You just need to look at the, the share prices of, of the major banks in this, this country to realize that everybody's going through hard times. But if you're an organization that is, A, not yet profitable, and is B, got a relatively limited set of revenue streams, as per Caroline's point, when those revenue streams uh, die up, so you're going to need more capital, simple as that. And so if you're going to need more capital to effectively stand still, then, of course, that waters down the valuation. I think that's exactly what an organization like Monzo is facing into. And, and most organizations that want to raise capital around this time will, will face into that same challenge. There is a pandemic, and that has changed things profoundly in terms of what a, a, a flow or a momentum would be around those sort of things. And so I think we'll see others struggling in exactly the same way as Monzo have, through no fault of their own, through purely a, a, a seismic change in in, in the economy for however long that, that, that period uh, endures. It'll come back, and, and those revenue streams, I'm sure, will, will come back uh, for organizations like Monzo and others. But right now, that is, that is, that's a, a particular kick in the, uh, in the teeth, if, if I'm honest, with regards to uh, the revenues that do offset that need for ongoing capital. Mm. Yeah, it's a, as uh, as we all said, it's a it's a tough time to to raise, isn't it? In in this market, given I mean, you're very much over a barrel in terms of continuing your operating cost at the same phase, but needing that investment. But um, Simon, what what do you think? Is this a, do you think this is a bit of a blip? And I think in the the grand schemes of of, of history, things uh, things get kind of smoothed out, don't they? But um, it must sting a little bit, um, particularly if you're an investor in the last round. It's um, it's not a it's not a good story. Yep, completely agree. I mean, I think uh, you know Monzo as a as a bank uh, and its products are still fantastic. Nothing has changed. I think it's just simply as as, as the uh, the fellow panelists were, were talking about, you know, their their sources of revenue uh, are severely hampered. I mean, you you could there's a flip side to this. If you look at some of the incumbent banks, you know, they're reeling from all of the forbearance issues they've got. Through all of the different loan products that they've, you know, they've got out there to uh, to customers uh, across the UK, um, and Monzo doesn't have that problem. Um, but I think, 
there's a timing, uh, a bit of it, bit of bad luck from a timing perspective here. Um, uh, and clearly, that's not really an excuse if you are the CEO of the company talking to your investors. But I think there is a little bit of bad luck. I do see it as being a blip. Uh, and I think, you know, as David was saying, they need the money potentially just to stand still. So I think there's maybe a, a bit of foresight and planning that they'll learn from for the future. But when the market comes back, guess who will move quickest? It will be Monzo. Um, meanwhile, a lot of the incumbents are still going to be reeling from the problems I was talking about earlier with you know, all the forbearance issues and the payment holidays and everything else. You know, st- that, that will pl- uh, have to play out over a period of months, whereas Monzo can sort of almost kick back into gear. And I think we'll probably see future valuations, you know, on that uh, on that upward trajectory as we uh, as we come out the back of this this pandemic cycle. I agree. I mean, time time will definitely sort of tell on this one. They haven't done a bad job to date, have they? So uh, you sort of suspect they'll kind of figure this out and uh, navigate these uh, pretty troubled waters. David, if I just say one more thing as well, it, it is a pretty. Uh, precipitous time for a load of organizations that we talked about Monza and the valuation are challenging there. But equally, if you have capital, if you have uh, the opportunity to invest, and I think Revolut are talking about that same sort of thing right now, then it, it is an opportunity as much as it is as, as a threat potentially to to acquire new businesses, to move in, in, in directions that you didn't necessarily see yourself working on the same trajectory. But I think we're really fascinating time as, as to how that will, will pan out across uh, a, across the financial services landscape, both here in the UK, but perhaps more uh, uh, globally as well. Mm. Yeah, there's been talk of Revolut buying uh, travel, you know, uh, flight booking set up and all different types of things, isn't there? So uh, uh, it'll be interesting to see how many of those really sort of come to bear, won't it? But uh, all right, guys. Well, I, I mean, meanwhile, if we take a bit of a look over in challenger banks and other markets. So uh, this first up is uh, Australia. So Vault pulls its IPO, a story over in Australian Financial Review. Uh, Vault has scrapped a planned 50 million Australian dollars fundraise uh, from international investors and delays the bank's expected 2020 public listing. So now the bank will instead launch a 15 million uh, Australian dollars rights issue to its existing investors while also launching home loans before the end of the year. Vault has been planning on bringing in mortgages and business lending to the market. However, these have now been delayed as well. I mean, this is an interesting one for, for me because, I mean, Vault have been doing pretty impressive stuff over in Australia. Like the Australian market more generally has uh, really uh, been doing pretty amazing things. I mean, David used to live over in... I, I, despite the accent, I've got, I'm have got. i an Australian passport holder. So I, I've spent 10 years there uh, and I returned about three years ago. And in the time I've been back in the UK, it really has exploded in terms of the number of, I'm going to say, viable challenger uh, banks that are now emerging on, on the scene there. So big hats off to everyone over in Australia if, if you're involved in that sort of stuff. A um, couple of things I'd say about the, the Australian landscape. So first of all, if we think um, the dominance of the majors here in the UK is a thing, it is doubly bad over in Australia. There are four banks that just completely dominate that landscape. And, and so making inroads of that, it, it must be ripe for, for a shake-up. Um, and interestingly, what I've seen is there's not that many organizations focusing on, on the SME market in any major way. Uh, so I think that is a really smart play to go into. Um, Australia has gone through the same as we're experiencing right right now here in the UK, the pandemic, and I still speak to a lot of friends about uh, where they're at. But what I would say is they're coming out of it quite quickly. Uh, so there's been a huge fiscal stimulus that's gone into the economy there in a different way to we're seeing here in the UK. But Australia is feeling quite upbeat, actually, despite the fact that there is 
unfortunately a, a massive increase in, in unemployment. Uh, it's called the lucky country, and, and it, it may be that yet again we find uh, we see uh, our Australian uh, counterparts coming out of this perhaps better than other uh, economies across the globe. So I think it, you know I'm not particularly worried if I'm Volt right now about it. Perhaps it is more a reflection of the international markets rather than one uh, within within an Australian one. I think there's a there's a right market there. I think the Australian economy won't come out of this anywhere near as bad as perhaps some of the uh, the European or, 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 or I guess the, the Western economies will, or even the Asian economies um, more generally. So I think it's a, again, it could be just a simple timing thing right now. And it's probably a smart move to keep the powder dry and, and go again when, when an increased level of certainty is out there from an international perspective. Yeah, I mean, it's it's super interesting, isn't it? The, the Australian market is so ripe for such dramatic change and it's good to see you know players like this really sort of going at that i mean it, it this keeps highlighting i think it's an amazing amount that it costs to run a challenger bank at this scale right because i mean vault already closed 70 million in january as part of its series c so now having to go back for a further 50 million is it's just it's pretty amazing how uh, how much it costs to scale these organizations scale these operations and sort of keep heading in that area but i think that points probably to a wider talent shortage probably uh you know globally for for people who have really got the experience to do these things um across all different disciplines not just in the technology space but but broader than that simon tally what do you think yeah well i was going to lead off from that point because of course um we saw that h6400 closed their 34 million dollar series a only last month so that's quite a meaty series a but of course you've got there somebody with a track record with both atom and of course metro so there is some experience and talent to that point that that has done this before and knows what works and what doesn't or at least has some some hard fought experience the other thing that struck me as interesting about this is that it was a rights issue um a lot of people talk about flat round is the new 3x valuation well this is a flat round in a session in a sense but it's a different contractual way of achieving the same thing raising capital just by creating more shares and diluting all investors more or less equally uh, other than i guess the 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 founders who are probably more diluted and and that's actually probably not the worst thing um in this market it buys them a little bit of time and it puts them into an interesting place so yeah i think david's point was spot on that this buys them time until the market comes back and honestly i'm surprised we've not seen more go this route um and you know it Rights issues always make me think of really big companies in distressed times. Uh, I wonder if we will start to see um, more of this or if this is a quirk of the Australian market, the optimism of the investors involved in, in particular, um, and the nature of the cap table that they already had. So interesting one to watch, but I, I completely agree. Australia is such an interesting market for so many reasons uh, in fintech and, and beyond. I agree. Uh, Caroline, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, raising money, if you, if you don't have to do it now, uh, is a good thing. So I think it's sensible to pull an IPO. Um, but clearly they needed the money. So I don't know what terms the rights issue were on. And to your point, Simon, around, you know, the, the flat rounds or the size of rounds, I think it's really hard to, at the moment to know really what's going on because the valuation and the amount raised is one thing. But I think what we're seeing in the markets actually is many more arduous terms coming in on those funding. So yes, it might look like a uh, you know, $34 million raise, which it might well be, but it could have some horrendous participating preference, um, you know, and there were some other horrible liquidation, you know, requirements. So, so who knows um, what these rounds really look like at the moment. But anecdotally, the investors are striking pretty hard terms, as what my understanding is. 
Mm. And like you say, if they if they need the money, there's no there's no alternative but to do this, is there? There's a, I mean, across this and the uh, the Monzo story, and actually with what we're seeing with Revolut and other players in the market, it's uh, people really are, as you say, Simon, they're, they're kind of using all of the tricks to to kind of make sure that they're as any organization has to in this phase, control costs, increase revenue. And in, in this instance, revenue is investment money to kind of keep that burner burner light, isn't it? But uh, Simon, have you got any uh, thoughts on this? Yeah, so similar to David, actually, I spent nine years in Australia. So I'm also a, uh, a fake Australian uh, with a passport. Um, amazing place. Uh, very, very interesting market. I actually worked for the Commonwealth Bank of Australia for a chunk of the time that I was out there. And, you know, I, I actually at the time thought it was a, a brilliant organization that was before everything kicked off and all of the, all of the Royal Commission they actually found out what I was really doing when I was over there. Um, but no, it's an amazing place. I think uh, at any time to go to an IPO to fundraise uh, could, you know, can always be fraught with danger. I think, um, you know, becoming a listed company, uh, it, it can bring with it some, some pressures that you just, don't want, um, you know. I'm sure there are advantages, but it, it can also bring some serious pressure. Um, I think we were talking about the um, the sizes of the raises that some of these companies have done in the preceding months, and why do they have to raise, you know, so much on an ongoing basis? I'm sure there is, and probably David knows this better than I do, but I'm sure there are some pretty heavy burdens from a regulatory perspective and having to put capital aside and all those kinds of things when you obviously want to launch new products. You know, it may well be that of the 30 million raise they did six months before, you know, 20 has to actually be put aside to allow them to undertake certain activity. Maybe it's an obvious thing to say, but that's probably why there is such uh, a need for them to continuously raise funds. Um, you know, Australia is a very, very interesting market. I think outside of the UK, it is almost the ripest market uh, uh, for for disruptors, for fintechs, you know, for neobanks. Uh, at some stage, though, there will probably be too many. So it's really interesting. I mean, how many neobanks do we have in Australia? Three, four, five? Not sure. Um, but it may well become overcrowded quite quickly. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it might do. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens and like you say, how those big organizations really fight back to it, essentially, aren't they at this stage? But uh, I mean, one organization that's definitely not uh, sort of shy of uh, figuring out how they move forward in these times uh, over in Singapore is DBS, who are looking to hire another 2000 staff in plans that they've kind of set out now. So DBS in Singapore has committed to hiring over 2000 people this year, including 360 jobs for a seasoned professional professionals in growth technology areas. Of the total number of placements, more than a thousand are new roles. The announcement follows an earlier pledge by the bank promising no layoffs. Uh, employees facing a lull in work activity are encouraged to upskill themselves through e-learning programs that DBS has put in place. So on the tech front particularly, the new roles comprise of more than 300 jobs in UX and UI, uh, data science, fraud detection, compliance, as well as consumers and institutional banks technology. I mean, it's a pretty significant expansion. I, I know, I mean, 2000 in an in a or, already very significant sized organization is uh, is interesting. But um, but this is a pretty bold step for DBS to continue to, to invest in, particularly on the technology, uh, technological side of things. Um, Simon Taylor, what do you what do you think to this? Is this uh, them? They've always been pretty wedded to a big technology program. But is this them just sort of continuing that? 
It's hard to see through, read between the lines on this, because when a big UK bank announces layoffs, they also announce a lot of people being retrained. And is this just a lot of people being retrained with no layoffs? And they've created 2,000 new roles, of which you know 1,000 of those didn't exist before in the bank, and they're moving people from one thing to another? Or is this 2,000 net new hires? Is this 1,000 net new hires? Are they growing their total headcount? So it's, it's a little bit unclear. Um, but what I would say is that's a macro trend. The skills that you needed to be a banker 20, 30 years ago and the skills that you need now are transitioning from being a digitized business to being a truly digital business. And and it doesn't surprise me that, yes, e-learning, but also the way that DBS has been working. They've had, I think, truly digital propositions in market for quite some time. You know, uh, Neil Cross has been there doing stuff um, for you know 10, 15 years ago. He was he was kind of a pioneer in a lot of this stuff. And I think that's um, that's allowed them to do do things a, l- a little bit different. So, um, you know, doesn't strike me as being uh, hugely um, surprising, given that they have been going this way for some time. But yeah, hard to see if this is just an announcement about a broader trend that had been happening anyway, or if this is a, a signal to a real shift inside the organization. I agree. Uh, anybody got any thoughts on this? I think one of the things that's quite interesting is um, the kind of where the jobs are in the technical roles. And I think it kind of shows that AI is becoming a bigger and bigger um, important application within banks, whether that's in fraud or personalization or in you know, collections, which are always very big at the moment, uh, or just kind of risk or customer analysis. But using new techniques to get new insights, I think, is an increasingly important part of all bank strategies now. And it looks like DBS are really looking to focus and capitalize on that with the, the nature of the headcount that they're, they're bringing on board. David? And I would, I'd only add to that. I mean, the nature of the roles are not particularly surprising. If you look at, you know, the typical hires that we're seeing from you were class forward thinking organisations like DBS, so it's not a huge surprise to see them. I agree with Simon to, to to wonder how much it is net new, or is it perhaps a reposition of existing resources, or or, or not. But I, I just think uh, it's it's akin to what we've seen with DBS before. They've got a pretty clear and bold strategy in the digital space. We've actually, I mean, I I, I support a little bit of an MSC in in retail and digital banking with Cranfield, and as part of that, we hold up DBS as a case study for doing these sorts of things uh, appropriately. And, and here they are again, making the right noises with the right types of resources uh, at a time when everyone else is arguably pulling back from, from uh, not necessarily from the roles, but certainly in terms of big numbers in terms of headcount and things. So, so well played to them, I think. Mm. I mean, it's it's been interesting, like say DBS uh, and Simon Goodness, I can't remember what episode of uh, Fintech Insider it would have been on, but Neil Cross way back in, I don't know, early 50, 60, somewhere in there, um, just talking about how they've gone about this, which is it's about culture. You know, you get the right people together, you set up a right culture that actually more emulates the the sort of technology approach of multidisciplinary teams and setting these things up. And it does, it, it turns out it works well. Who, who would have thought it? But uh, all right, uh, we should probably move on to the next one because we could talk about these for, for quite some, some time. But um, next up, we have a story uh, over in Fintech Futures, which is Free Trade sets new Crowdcube records. So Free Trade, the UK-based stock trading app, landed five million in just four hours on Crowdcube, setting a new equity crowdfunding record for the platform since lockdown began. It has since finished at seven million. So this surpasses fellow UK fintech Chip, who raised 2.6 million on Crowdcube in April. Uh, Free Trade raised the first one million in just four minutes and 33 seconds, which is pretty damn impressive, I have to say. I mean, it is a, a really interesting thing to see so many 
more organizations kind of moving to crowdfunding platforms. But rather than us speculating, let's uh, hear directly from Adam Dodds, who is the free trade CEO. Crowdfunding is how we built our business. It's the only source of funding we had before our Series A last year. And we plan to keep on offering the opportunity for our customers to become shareholders in the business. We weren't sure if the lockdown and the COVID crisis might impact the raise, but it turned out not to be the case. This was the largest and fastest crowd round we've ever done. Um, and we'll use the money to amp up marketing and expand to Europe. Most of our uh, growth to date has really just been through word of mouth. I mean, it's a it's a pretty phenomenal raise in, in a time where, I mean, not just businesses are tightening their belts, but, uh, you know, normal human beings on the on the street are as well. I mean, free trade have got a very strong community, you know, the the community behind um, them. And actually, we've seen with other sort of stock trading uh, products in the past have been really, really strong as well. So, you know, getting your community involved in your raise and get sort of deepening their relationship with you makes a huge amount of sense, doesn't it? Um, Caroline, what do you think? I wonder whether sort of the volatility helps as well. Actually, the kind of whole uncertainty around the pandemic, maybe more people actually want to get involved with trading and they think, well, if I'm going to get involved with this, maybe I should also participate in, in the crowdfund. But often at the same time, I'm a bit cynical about crowdfunding sometimes. Maybe it's just me. I don't know why, but I don't know whether it's always um, that actually a lot of the crowd is not spontaneously generated in that word of mouth moment at all, but absolutely lined up beforehand, drip fed, carefully managed, and it's all a bit of a stage managed effect. So um, I I don't know uh, on that how genuine uh, the crowd is. I mean, I'm sure it's it's a crowd of individuals, but how much of it, how fast that happens is probably a function of how much pre-marketing and lineup you've got versus interest on the day, she says, Mm. skeptically. I I mean, it, it, it it is really interesting though as a, uh, as a, a pre-listed uh, startup company. I mean, it really sort of raises the point around actually whether uh, equity in startups should be be able to be more freely traded in the way that it would do as a listed company because there's there's clearly such a an interest in it if you can if you can get five million in four hours that way and potentially have much less to, to the point earlier on Caroline about the the stipulations that some VCs are now putting into uh, you know investment elements around it in terms of the ratchets and everything that's happening there I mean it's interesting to see this potentially as a uh, quite a significant alternate model to more traditional VC route but um, Simon what do you think uh, so I think you mentioned earlier on you know that it's it's a bit of a movement free trade um, and uh, I mean it's a very impressive raise bar, you know, full stop. Um, I personally love the idea of being able to offer, uh, you know, private individuals the ability to, you know, to fund these kinds of firms from the start uh, with relatively small amounts of investment. But, you know, if if you look at what they're bringing to the market, you know, it's uh, invest for free forever. You know, that is a message that the market is going to respond to very positively and certainly probably a particular demographic of of the market. So, um, I'm not surprised that they managed to raise that amount of uh, money in a short space of time. I think, you know, they've had uh, they've had a strong following for for a while. Um, and, you know, for me, I'm all for it. I think it's uh, I think it's very, very positive. Yeah, I agree. Well, uh, Simon Taylor, what do you think? So there's I think um, there's been alluded to earlier that discussion of like, um, should you be allowed into crowdfunding and, and that question of, 
uh, you know, there's always the, are you a sophisticated investor? It was always hard to invest in these things going right back to the 1930s when a lot of people, uh, retail investors lost their shirt in the you know, booms and bust cycles. And so we brought in protections. But what a lot of those protections did is it meant that um, as companies were getting bigger and bigger in the private markets, by the time they got to IPO, they didn't always have a lot of growth left. So the only people that were really benefiting were the super rich who were able to access these VC funds and, and invest in them. So the it, it sort of exacerbated the wealth inequality. So crowdfunding in theory is, is a good idea if you can make it safe and you can put sensible limits in place. And it seems like some people have really taken advantage of that as long as they know what they're doing. And crowdfunding was kind of poo-pooed when it first came around, but actually now it seems really popular. The thing that struck me about this is if you look at their prospectus deck that they had to prepare, there's some really punchy numbers in there. So they are projecting that, um, well, so they're saying at the moment they have 150,000 customers. They have about just less than 150 million securities uh, held, but they're projecting a 2021 revenue of 33 million, 2022 revenue of 92 million pounds sterling, and a 2023 revenue um, of uh, 240 million pounds sterling with a near 100 million pounds profit. Um, that's pretty punchy. Um, and so for what we were talking about earlier with will these fintechs ever make money, uh, if these numbers are to be believed and are to be correct, and I'm assuming there's, there's a lot of people that because it is a prospectus will have at least done some due diligence on this from an investment banking standpoint, this in theory is a very good business. Um, and at least against these projections, that's not investment advice, by the way, do your own research. But that does say that there's something in this wealth space at the moment. There's this massive trend around um, retail coming into financial markets. And maybe you can see that in the price of popular stocks, but maybe there'll be a backlash here if retail does lose its shirt in the next downturn. So uh, interesting trends all around on this one. Mm. I, I wonder if, um, as you say, in terms of those those numbers, particularly in that prospectus, I, I wonder if they are, um, and, and like I say, not having looked at Crowdcube or not looked at the uh, the sort of terms and conditions in terms of the the investment that people do through that platform. But I, I mean, I wonder how uh, clearly not guaranteed these are, but how how much people kick the tires on those things to do them. Because we're, you know, we're talking about probably more, um, uh, you know, day-to-day -day traders rather than uh, the real sort of professional side of things doing this. People who are, are more akin to the brand than necessarily doing it as a as a long-term investment. So, um, I, I mean, I I actually might go and do a bit of um, digging into that to see really what the stipulations are around them, just just because I'm interested. If I'm honest with you, David, what do you think? No, I was I was just going to say uh, really interesting points. Listen to everyone there. The one thing I would say, whatever whatever you think about it, it's clearly working for free trade. I mean, they're using that as a very good vehicle to tap into a, a market, whatever you believe about the stats or not, to gain access to it. So I, I think you know it's nice to see a little bit of a variance in, in how 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 funds are being raised through this sort of thing. Right now. Yeah, completely. I mean, previously they've had a million in seventy seven seconds. So. Uh, Hey, keep doing what works for you, I guess, at that stage. All right, guys, uh, we're going to take a little bit of a break right now. We'll be back with you very shortly. We are truly in uncharted waters. Looking to us for guidance. Nothing is more important than building trust right now. This will be the new normal. How can I help? Hear that? That's the sound of change. Right now, business leaders are rethinking, reassessing, and repurposing business as usual to deal with this new crisis. It's a global conversation Salesforce is having called Leading Through Change. And it's all about businesses working together to achieve one simple goal, help. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you for everything that you're doing 
Learn more at salesforce.com backslash leading through change. This podcast is brought to you by Equinix. Equinix is the world's largest global platform of interconnected data centers, enabling fastest application performance, lowest latency, and a digital ecosystem for financial services. Its platform of over 200 data centers worldwide protects, connects, and empowers the mission-critical infrastructure for over 10,000 businesses. Find out more at equinex.co.uk. This episode of Fintech Insider is brought to you by MyTech. Combining the world's best forensic experts within the industry's most advanced technology, only MyTech delivers bank-grade identity verification with the highest possible assurance levels, massively reducing risk, fraud, and costs. Discover more at mytechsystems.com. All right, guys, I'm back on with the news, and we're going to be taking a bit of a look at some of the other stories that have been happening around the world, starting with a story that's over on Tech Radar. So this is Anna Money secures 17.5 million funding for its SMB-focused business account. I mean, Anna Money have been a really interesting product, and they've been around for a little while focusing on a slightly different audience. I mean, I love Anna Money's brand. They've done some amazing things with it, uh, some amazing swag, I have to say, in terms of the stuff that they've kind of set out there as well. But the fintech startup is focused on, uh, you know, like, say, a slightly different audience here. Um, but again, rather than us uh, giving our opinions first, let's hear from Daljit Singh, who is the chief design officer and co-founder at Anna Money. It's a really exciting moment in our journey, coming just under two years since we first launched. This investment's a recognition of the success Anna has achieved so far. Joining ABH will help support our growth in the UK and expansion into the EU and other markets and help us reach our goal of becoming the leading provider of business current accounts and financial admin services for SMEs and freelancers. At the moment, small businesses and sole traders need more support than they've ever needed. So it's very timely that we've had this investment that's going to allow us to develop our services and help design better products specifically for them. This just isn't about addressing short-term need. More and more people are becoming what we're calling furlancers by having the time to reevaluate their work-life balance, experience greater flexibility away from the typical nine-to-five office routine, and question what really makes them happy and fulfilled. We think some people may never go back to their old jobs. Instead, there'll be an increase in people considering turning their hobby or side hustles into their business. So, as Anna grows, we'll be adding a broader suite of digital financial tools and services, including some lending products, that will be integrated with ABH Holdings, other EU financial service providers, such as Amsterdam Trade Bank in the Netherlands. Partnering with ABH Holdings means we can make setting up and running your own business as painless as possible for as many people as possible. Very good. Um, Really interesting. I mean, if you look at the sort of stats behind where they're at, so they have 20,000 customers in the UK. That's a pretty big raise for for twenty thousand customers in a in a setup. So, I mean, the the investors on this one must be looking at real potential for very significant growth, right? Uh, Caroline, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a crowded market now, increasingly uh, in SME banking, and the segment that they're going after, freelancers and sole traders, which sort of 
almost a kind of prosumer segment, you know, is particularly difficult to make money from uh, in terms of particularly on the on the lending side, which they're also saying they're going to expand into. So I think it's really interesting. 20,000 customers, obviously a lot. But when you look at the basis of some of the other banks in this space, I think Tide is claiming about 100 to 150,000 now. Starling probably, I don't know how many, but not dissimilar, I'd guess. Um, so with all the money that's kind of flowed into this space, particularly from the RBS and Banking Competition Remedies Fund, it is a competitive market now, uh, or increasingly so. And I think, um, you know, they're going to need a significant amount of money to, to compete. But we've also seen, I think, again, with the pandemic, that there has been a flight back to incumbents, I would think, particularly in this market, not least because a lot of the incumbents were the first to get access to the C-bills you know, and the loan schemes, the balance about loans or the coronavirus business interruption loans. And so I think a lot of the banks, uh, a lot of people are maybe switching accounts back to the incumbent banks or might co- reconsider who they first take out an account with. Um, and so for a business like Anna, um, where their competitors like Tide and Starling have now been accredited for some of those loan schemes, it's going to be interesting to see what the next phase looks like for them. And I think it could be quite turbulent waters. Like you say, I think they they gear themselves very much to that low end, uh, I mean, low end complexity, you know, single person businesses, zero person businesses, you know, like the that sort of end of the market, which obviously is, I mean, it's like, 95% of the market, isn't it? But as you say, Caroline, it's very hard to, to kind of turn that into big scale kind of profitability. But David, have you got a point on this? Uh, look, as, as someone very interested in the SME market, I think uh, I've got a few bits to say really on this one. So uh, first of all, I, I agree completely with Caroline. This is, an, well, has been traditionally increasingly competitive space. There's no doubt that the BCR stimulus has has created a, a raft of, of options now for small to medium businesses that probably perhaps didn't exist three or four years ago. And I think that's going to only continue. Having said that, and again, complete to the point Caroline made, uh, in the current situation, what have we seen? We've seen uh, the government give access to to the government schemes to the major banks in the first instance. And so naturally, this this competition that was uh, attempted to be stimulated over the past few years has seen a massive pullback. The brakes have been put on hugely because the only way for businesses that sadly really do need access to capital in the short term, the only way for them to get access to that has been through the major banks. Uh, and, and so I, I feel it's going to be a tough time for them. I, I love what they've done and get, agree with the branding thing. Uh, they've done some great work and, and to get 20,000 customers is great, but it's a competitive and increasingly competitive market. And we've just seen this huge sideswipe, which has arguably set the trend that was beginning to to, uh, to to build momentum just set it back massively, unfortunately, over over the past few months. Simon C. Um, I, I completely agree with uh, with David. Um, we, we won't talk too too much about the uh, I guess the anti competitive issues that I think are pervading the market right now, which I think is a real problem. Um, but I do think it's a case of somebody like uh, a company like Anna holding on. When we do come out of this, I, I so I. I I agree on the one hand, you may see this flight back to the incumbents, but I can tell you what, they're going to fly back out again because unless the incumbents can hold them, they will be coming back out. Uh, And it's one thing to uh, switch to get a a bounce back loan from whoever it might be, Barclays. Um, You know, that's a means to an end, but it's that service provision and the customer experience that a company like Anna offers that is completely, you know, completely differentiates itself. So, um, you know, I hope that we do have a relatively quick uh, exit from this pandemic situation. Then I think there will be a flight back. But it's a question of holding on. 
and and the fact that they've raised um you know they're okay perhaps for a, for a wee while so good luck to them yeah it's going to be it's going to be super interesting as you say across the market to see how all of these things kind of pan out isn't it but Simon T what do you think so it was interesting that um, we're seeing this flight to the incumbents, but we have seen some of the new lenders. Uh, I think Caroline made the point that the SME lending space and the SME space has been getting increasingly competitive. Oak North is a Seabills lender. Tide is now a Seabills lender. You know, Coconut has been in this space for quite some time. There's a lot of people playing, of course, yeah, in Metro as well. There's a lot of people playing in that space that uh, ha- have been extremely competitive for quite some time. Uh, I really hope Anna does survive, if nothing else, other than for their Twitter account and their brand, because it's just phenomenal. Whoever runs social for those guys, hats off. I mean, my favorite Twitter account, um, aside from 11 investors, of course, um, is absolutely Anna Money. They were made famous for their meowing card. Brilliant. But with all that attention, you have to build a business. And that's the consistent theme running throughout this show is um, you know, they're bit, the ones that are doing well are the ones that are focused on building a business. Yes, they have a great brand, but you need the steak and the sizzle. You've got to have both. And I think that's the, the big message here. Um, and I agree with Simon C that whilst we may see this temporary flight, uh, it may not even be the same um, new challenges that are there in two, three years' time. Some of them may even, unfortunately, not be with us. Um, but uh, I, I suspect that that drive for better service for truly digital services that don't require me to go to a branch that can give me capital right now, the type of stuff that we've seen Shopify just launch, that um Digital at the point of need, finance at the point of need, uh, will absolutely gain ground. So, you know, if, if it takes giving away a majority stake in Anna to keep them alive, then um, then hopefully they they stick around. Hmm. Well, I mean, one organization that's uh, been sticking around for quite some time, going on to the next story, is PayPal. Uh, it's a story over on CNBC. So PayPal sees a significant rise in silver tech as older generations test digital payments. I mean, it's interesting. It's... Um, it's like seeing your mum get into a band that you loved like 25 years ago. It's like, uh, have you heard of Oasis, love? Have you have you heard of Oasis? Like, it's it's slightly like that, isn't it? But it's it's great that people are kind of getting in and really seeing that there's a real benefit in in digital payments. And I mean, PayPal still is integrated pretty much everywhere, which was the you know the beauty in it right at the beginning in terms of getting uh, being that thing that's easier than finding my wallet. It's the button on e-commerce. So, um, but the the so people over fifty or the so-called silver tech, I wouldn't have put fifty sounds low for silver tech to me. But anyway, uh, apparently they were PayPal's fastest growing segment from March to April. So they uh, also hope PayPal's total volume recover back to pre-COVID levels. Uh, E-commerce broadly has seen a boost um, from the COVID era shutdowns as cash was considered unsafe, unclean, or people are just not leaving in their house to, to actually use it. So MasterCard and Visa both reported more than a 40% jump in the e-commerce in their second quarter results. Visa, meanwhile, saw an increase in first-time shoppers internationally as well. Uh, PayPal's millennial subsidiary Venmo in particular stands to benefit from this new audience. The app has roughly 52 million active users, uh, and its popularity is with um, uh, more at the younger uh, group, I, I would have thought. But um, I mean, that's really interesting to see so many new people sort of coming to it. I mean, do you think that I, don't, I, don't, I just don't feel like over 50 is the the group that is giving a, a lack of service? I'd say like 70 plus maybe, but 50 to 50 to 70 is I'm still considering in that that sort of uh, middle group right now, wouldn't you? 
as someone who's rapidly getting more and more silver by the day, I completely agree with what you just said. Yeah, I don't think uh, the generation that is 50 plus is necessarily that, that revolutionary. But but let's face it, everyone's at home uh, across the world. And so, uh, again, at a time of great great change, it's a great catalyst for experimentation. And, and I, I don't see why any generation should be particularly uh, different to any other right now because we're all facing into the how do we how do we go online and buy things? So I, I don't think it's a surprise any of the stats that have come out from from either PayPal or, or the card schemes, quite honestly. And I guess some of that is fueled by by the proposition. Clearly, PayPal is is very straightforward and remains so uh, to this day. But also, let's face it, the media focus on cash or the the evil that is cash, seemingly that that's now out there as a as a potential risk for spreading uh, viruses, is only pushing more and more transactions that way. So. Uh, it's, it's a perfect storm in some ways for, for an organization that is predominantly uh, 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 an online or a digital experience, which is paper. Caroline? I, I do also think that, like, exactly to your point, there's a fundamental shift in consumer behavior that is not going to go back to the way it ever was before. People, It's a sort of huge acceleration that the pandemic has put on people to, to change their adoption of digital technologies. You know, I'm Zooming my parents, and that would be absolutely unheard of. It took us 45 minutes to get it started the first time but now they won't go back and I think um you know with this transition then to um to brands that have been around for a while and actually are, are more trusted it's this sort of flight to trust as and um flight to brand and the quality of those brands I think is increasingly important so in some ways it's no surprise that a, a brand like PayPal that has been around for a long time is hugely trusted by this segment that is probably coming online and doing e-commerce or new logistics new, new deliveries and new payments for the first time so um, I'm, yeah, I think good on them. It, it is interesting, isn't it? The things you didn't think you would ever have to have a conversation with your mum and dad about, which is like <laughs> uh, the the pros and cons of gallery view versus speaker view in Zoom. Never something I thought I'd have to talk to to my in-laws about, but uh, it's, it's coming up very frequently. And, and like you say, digital payments and everything that comes with it. It's, um, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, both Simons, I mean, do you, do you see that really the inhibitor has been just people's fear of trying something and now that the the whole world has been sort of put into a place where they had to give this a go that to, to caroline's point people just won't ever go back to the old way yeah potentially fear is 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 one thing i mean it's it's the situational element right so so as david said we're all at home um and, and everybody or not everybody you're not forced to online shop i guess but if you haven't online shopped during this period uh you know you'll probably be quite unique, I would think. So uh, and you made the point about how integrated PayPal is. It appears pretty much anywhere. You know, I can imagine somebody sort of, you know, going on to Amazon or whatever it is and looking at, uh, you know, they're going to buy X, Y or Z. And all of a sudden, you know, PayPal pops up as, a, as an option. I can just imagine that conversation. You know, what, what's this PayPal? What, what, what's this all about? You know, how does this work? Uh, is this a scam? Um, and, and, you know, it just takes a couple of, couple of minutes and, and, and all of a sudden it's, it is actually incredibly easy to use, incredibly easy to use. So to Caroline's point, uh, that adoption of digital technologies and digital behaviours and a willingness uh, and an openness to using it has been massively accelerated. You know, if you're a business owner today, and you have not had the ability to, to pivot, at least in part from, you know, physical selling to, 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 to virtual or digital, enormous challenges. And, and I think there's been some incredible learnings uh, uh, over the past few months. You know, I am, I'm always optimistic. I mean, we've learned a lot as an organization. I'm sure everybody on 
on this call has. Um, and it's really important that we take the positives. It's been challenging, but there are some real benefits, arguably, uh, and some great things I think all of us have learned. So PayPal are a clear beneficiary. Agree. Simon? Uh, PayPal are the OG of fintech, and since they're split from um, uh, from eBay, they've been phenomenal. I mean, their market cap is 175 billion US dollars. That makes them twice the size of HSBC. I mean, this is a massive, massive organization. No wonder people think they're quite sturdy, um, and they're a brand that's been around more than 20 years. Uh, I'm not surprised that when e-commerce does well, businesses that are in e-commerce do well. I'm also not surprised that a lot of people have shifted buying habits to e-commerce because it's kind of that or nothing for everything outside of groceries in many parts of the world. Uh, but it's it may how much of this sticks is still an unknown quantity when the shops reopen will we see everything stay exactly where it is in e-commerce possibly not but will we see a lot of people who consider e-commerce more than they did before how could you not suddenly eyes are being opened and i think this has you know it's the classic meme what accelerated your digital transformation you know your boss um the the strat house or covid19 and it's always uh, it's always going to be the pandemic in this stuff. And, and I don't mean to poo-poo the pandemic, which is very serious, but from the business response, it can be be quite astonishing. So, you know, PayPal gets overlooked and they're the OG. So shout out to those guys. Mm. I mean, definitely my e-commerce has picked up, but it's mainly because my mum's making me do her shopping online for her. So like, you know, there's there's still this human interface, but the human interface is me. But uh, all right, guys. Well, I mean, we're coming towards the end of the show now, but um, there was a load of other stories that happened this week. And we probably want to sort of touch on a few of these because uh, they do deserve a, a bit of a shout out. Simon, do you want to kind of kick us off with a few of these? Yeah, first story was from Finextra, and this was about first, first data, not face data, first data, agreeing $40 million FTC settlement. Um, so uh, as one of its former executives will pay more than $40.2 million to settle U.S. charges uh, that they knowingly processed payments and laundered or assisted the laundering of credit card transactions for scams that targeted hundreds of thousands of consumers. Um, first data ignored repeated warnings that uh, Vincent Coe, uh, through his company that served face data as an independent sales agent was in fact laundering. Co, through his prior company, First Pay Solutions, opened hundreds of merchant accounts for at least four scams, says the FTC. He's accused of opening accounts under false names, providing Wells Fargo with deceptive information to open the accounts, and ignoring evidence that his clients were engaged in fraud. First Data ignored the warnings about Co, and then later hired him as an executive. Goodness. Okay. Uh, and then another story here, We, uh, in a callback to two weeks ago and the closure of Bo, the next story comes also from Finextra. So this is ABN AMRO Shell's investment app. So ABN AMRO is to uh, put its Kendu investment app out to pasture after failing to gain sufficient traction with customers. Kendu, an app allowing users to make investments for as little as 50 euros, was introduced in April 2019. Kendu will continue to manage its clients' investments until uh, 15th of June. After this date, it will then sell the investments and clients will be eligible for full compensation of any losses incurred. The Dutch bank has not had much luck in the digital wealth management space. In April last year, it pulled out of a robo-advisory market shutting down its online wealth management businesses, Prosperity, in Germany after failing to attract uh, sufficient clients again. 
In some better startup news, um, story from Fenextra, Brex, uh, not Brexit, but Brex, the startup, has raised 150 million US dollars. This is the corporate card and rewards program designed specifically for startups that uh, if you're in fintech, you probably can't avoid these guys at the moment. Um, The firm built their tech stack from the ground up, enabling them to do things such as determine credit limits based on real-time monitoring of clients' accounts. Um, The startup says that it spent the last few months adapting its business for the COVID-19 era including uh, introducing a rewards program to better serve customers that have moved to remote working, as well as adding support for Apple Pay and Google Pay. The latest funding will be used to invest across engineering, product, and design functions in order to improve expense management, procurement, and software tooling. Interesting. Uh, on the other side of the world, for one of the world's biggest funds, things aren't looking particularly good at this stage. Uh, SoftBank warns uh, in a story over on the FT that no dividend will be coming after record $13 billion loss. SoftBank has warned that it may not pay a dividend from the coming financial year for the first time since its listing in 1994, following a $18 billion blow from the Vision Fund that plunged the Japanese groups into a pretty historic full year of losses. Uh, in addition to the implosion of its biggest bet on WeWork, even before COVID-19, the pandemic has wreaked a pretty significant impact on the other investments that they've got, whether it's Uber, DD or OYO that they have as well. Uh, that has resulted in the fund generating an internal rate of return of minus 6% uh, compared to its target, which where they were looking for um, of uh, just over 20% they were looking at for before, with the value of 47 of its 88 investments written down. 15 of its vision fund investments could at this stage go bankrupt as well. Uh, SoftBank also announced that Alibaba founder Jack Ma would step down as a director of SoftBank after 13 years up in the board. And another story we didn't have time to cover this week um, was NatWest have launched Island Saver as research shows that video games help to educate children. David, we were right all along as kids. Um, 85% of parents uh, say video games help develop their child's problem solving, uh, which they identify as the most important skill as uh, for their children's future careers. In addition, 70% of parents believe uh, video games improve children's knowledge in technology. The Island Saver game is an open-world, non-violent first-person format game set up on the idyllic savvy islands with an array of environments to explore. Made up of different ecosystems, including a jungle, beach, and desert, players are armed with a trash blaster, a powerful suction tool um, called a blaster, um, and are tasked with cleaning up the island with uh, of the litterbugs that have polluted paradise. Uh, woven into the gameplay are a series of money learning points. These range from a simple work to earn as characters earn coins by cleaning up litter to saving money in bank accounts. As players progress through the game, they will also be introduced to the more advanced elements of good money management, including paying tax to maintain the idyllic island setting, borrowing money, and even the elements of foreign exchange. Um, it's, it's all getting very Animal Crossing. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's super interesting, that, isn't it? Because, I mean, as you say, youth market growing into full accounts, it's an interesting thing. Sort of in the midst of this one, there was a, a view that this was two years in the making as well. So they've really stuck to an investment to, um, you know, invest in the kids, as it were, which is which is good. But uh, of course, though, we we couldn't finish there without uh, covering a few more of the the sillier stories. And uh, this one particularly was a was a very very interesting one, wasn't it, Simon? Do you want to uh, talk a little bit about what J.K. Rowling's been on uh, on about with uh, her views on Bitcoin? 
Oh, there are so many places you could cover this. Um, so J.K. Rowling uh, took to Twitter um, and uh, sort of um, asked about Bitcoin. Um, so um, on the 15th of May, Rowling inquired about Bitcoin and explained, I'm sure cryptocurrencies are fascinating, but I'm afraid this is a total blind spot for me. This resulted in an absolute avalanche of replies, including one Elon Musk who tried to explain it. Quite earnestly, I suspect. Rowling then addressed these, trying to explain it to her. She said, this started as a joke, but now I'm afraid I'll never be able to log into Twitter again without somebody getting angry that I don't own Bitcoin. She also joked, uh, it should be perfectly obvious by now that I've been trolling Bitcoin in the hope of boosting my significant Ethereum holdings, which... For those of you that get the the, the crypto nerdery, was absolutely perfectly placed joke. Um, so um, by the 18th of May, she concludes, never be flippant about Bitcoin on Twitter. Um, yeah, I mean, if you want to invite the troll army, start talking crypto on Twitter. Believe me, um, it's pretty crazy. This was this was a weird crossover point, I think, for producer Laura as well, who's uh, who's a bit of a, a Harry Potter fan. Um, seeing this happen must have been pretty wild for Laura. It is a strange one. Like you say, definitely don't annoy crypto fans on uh, on Twitter is a is a strong advice point, I think, for anybody in life if you, you really want to retain on the internet. But uh, did anybody glean any uh, insights from JK here on uh, investments into Bitcoin at this stage then? Or uh, was this just a bit of fun, do you think? As ever, she's always proving how how uh, how dry she is with that sense of humor. There's not one uh, tweet that goes out from JK Rowling that's not loaded with lots and lots of thought. Uh, she's brilliant. It does, as you say, uh, Simon, it's just a, a weird world when the, the writer of Harry Potter starts talking to the makers of uh, a mission to Mars on Twitter about something that's, uh, you know, cryptocurrency that doesn't 100% exist. It's just the world in, Sorry, in the COVID times. Yeah, the world needs these things, doesn't it? Just to take our mind off things, at least for a couple of minutes. You know? Do you know, like they say that um, because we're all in lockdown, our dreams are getting more vivid. I really did think for a second, this is just this wildly vivid dream where the the author of Harry Potter is having a conversation with Elon Musk about Bitcoin on Twitter. Like, what? <laughs> did not see that one coming. That's That's lockdown fever getting us. Well, thank, thank goodness celebrities can cheer us up every so often. All right. All right, guys. Uh, unfortunately, that brings us to the end of this week's show. Thank you so much to all of our guests. Where can people find out a little bit more about you, Caroline? I'm at C Plum on Twitter. Um, that's P-L-U-M-B or at Fluidly. Fantastic. David, where can people learn more? Yeah, look, look me up on LinkedIn, David uh, Thomason. I'm available on there. Have a look around. Uh, Simon Curitan. Uh, at Funding Options on Twitter and uh, www.funningoptions.com. Mr. Taylor. At SY Taylor on Twitter or 11FS.com. Fantastic. As for me, you can find me over on LinkedIn. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us make it better and helps other people find the show as well. Speaking of which, if you know somebody who loves fintech who isn't listening to Fintech Insider, please pass the pod along and tell them about the show. It's always good to get new listeners. If you have any suggestions, you can find us on social media or just search for 11FS uh, or email at podcast at 11fs.com. Thank you so much for listening this week. Speak to you soon.